Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Will Pomerantz, and I'm Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute. And we are very happy to have you today to hear uh, Professor Butler's book talk on his latest book, International Law in the Russian Legal System. Before we begin, I encourage you to stay up to date with all the latest Kennan Institute events and publications by visiting our website and subscribing to our two blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine, as well as our podcast, Canon X and The Russia File. Well, to say that Professor William Butler is prolific is a gross understatement. He is the author, co-editor, uh, co-author and translator of more than 4,000 books, articles, translations and reviews on Soviet, Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Tajik, Uzbek, and other CIS legal systems. He is currently the John Edward Fowler Distinguished Professor of Law at the Dickinson School of Law at Penn State University. He is also the Emeritus Professor of Comparative Law at the University of London. Uh, in addition to his scholarship, he is a practitioner, a government advisor, and a frequent provider of expert legal advice and opinions in courts around the world. He has received numerous accolades, too long to list, but he was elected as an academician of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences and of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine, uh, a unique double combination. Uh, he has served as mentor and advisor to numerous scholars in the field. And on a personal note, I should note that I have been a direct beneficiary of Professor Butler's generosity and commitment to advancing the field of Russian law. Indeed, it was many moons ago that I walked into Professor Butler's office in London with an idea. And I think it was just an idea at the time. I, I don't think it was a lot of substance about wanting to do a PhD dissertation on the pre-revolutionary Russian legal profession. I could see from Professor Butler's office that he was a very busy man. Uh, but he gave me his time, his advice, his encouragement, and ultimately agreed to serve as my co-supervisor of my PhD dissertation. So I was just very pleased when Professor won a George F. Kennan Fellowship and was able to spend some time uh, at the Kennan Institute. Indeed, he got in just under the wire before uh, uh, COVID shut us down. But he has now published the results of his research uh, international Law in the Russian Legal System. It's published by Oxford University Press. And you can purchase the book by going to the Oxford University's Press website and using the code, all in caps, A-L-A-U-T-H-C-4 to receive a 30% discount on the book. In addition, like all other of our candidates who events, uh, if you want to uh, submit questions, you can do so via email at canon at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet us at Kennan Institute or post on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when, when sending the questions. And with that, Professor Butler, the floor is yours. Thank you and good morning to you all. I wanna begin as I do in the book by extending my thanks both to the Kennan Center for hosting me for a period of time in the spring of 2019 to pursue this study and to Dr. Pomerantz for making available to me personal materials from his library that the Kennan Center does not hold, uh, Kennan Institute does not hold, nor does the Library of Congress to the best of my knowledge. I happen to have the set at home, but that was a couple hundred miles away and not convenient. And also to Peter Rudek at the Library of Congress who did make materials available to me from that rich collection that are duly reflected uh, in the footnotes. This is a book talk, so I'll give you a brief overview of the book itself, International Law in the Russian Legal System. Treaties are rather fun, uh, so the book begins with the historical background because the earliest documents that we have on the history of Russia are treaties. There are four of them, the dating is a bit controversial, but we think 907, 911, seven, sorry, 711, uh, start again. 
But some think that they go earlier than that, that we're really talking about the years 860 or the years 874. That's conjecture, but there's an argument to be made. In any case, what survives by way of written accounts of Russia's early international relations take the form of treaties. And that's not unusual in international relations. The earliest treaties that we know about for certain go back to the reign of Hammurabi in ancient civilizations. Probably in the early days, treaties were oral rather than written, so they could be as ancient as mankind itself. Those of you who follow archeological developments may have read last week from the Smithsonian that they uncovered the remains in Latin America of a diplomat who was believed to have been in the process of concluding a treaty of alliance between two uh, peoples in that part of the world. Perhaps so, perhaps not, but the hieroglyphics are impressive evidence uh, of that exercise. So the first chapter deals with historical background. It also deals with a recurring element in Russian historiography of international relations generally and treaties in particular. And I refer to the so-called internal treaties of the Russian empire. Treaties concluded between appanage princes uh, in the territory of Rus initially, uh, Muscovy later on. One of the challenging issues for those who compile treaty collections of Russian diplomacy was how to treat these documents, whether they were to be treated as constitutional internal law documents or whether they were to be treated as international legal documents. Dominant historiography has been inclined to treat them as internal documents. And that is a, a, an approach I think that we continue to see in Russian law down to this time when we talk about treaties between subjects of the Russian Federation. All of these elements of background, of course, influenced Soviet approaches to the law of treaties. And I, in my opinion, continue to influence in some way or other post-Soviet approaches to the law of treaties. I then turn to the sources of the Russian law of treaties. And I deal with 18 of these, which one way or another, either directly serve the development of the law of treaties or influence the development of the law of treaties. Then I turn to a chapter that I'm particularly pleased with, chapter three dealing with contemporary treaty making in the Russian Federation. I encountered a document uh, online which deals with a manual by which Russian uh, civil servants and Russian ministries and departments are directed to conduct themselves when they are drafting treaties. There used to be a, an analogous document within the Department of State of the United States. Maybe there still is. This goes back to the 1970s, but we had the Office of the Legal Advisor circulating a similar document to other agencies of the United States government, which explained also what the treaty making process comprised. The guide to lawyers, one that specifically tells them which step to take and why. That's a very helpful document. Uh, maybe it still exists, maybe it's been revised. I haven't looked into it. I did not know that there was an equivalent document uh, in Russia. There is, and uh, it is of course binding upon ministries and departments who are involved in any way in the treaty making process. And it serves the same purpose. It takes diplomats, civil servants through the mechanics of drafting a treaty, what to look for, what not to look for, what to do, uh, what not to do, etc. To the best of my knowledge, which is considerable in this subject area, uh, it has never been cited by any other Ru Russian international lawyer. Either they don't use it or they don't know about it one way or the other. Of course, if they're working inside the system, some of them at least have to know about it. We then turn to the publication and registration of treaties in Russia. This is important for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, Mr. Trotsky was among those who was responsible for publishing to the embarrassment of the Western powers, the secret treaties that had been concluded by the previous Tsarist government with other countries, redividing Europe at the time as a consequence of the First World War. And he did indeed embarrass us. President Wilson, of course, pursued the same line in his 14 points and strongly favored the concept of open diplomacy. But in fact, as I learned, uh, the United States had espoused this principle back as early as 1794. 
and you will find a footnote somewhere in there which cites the resolution of Congress to the effect that treaties of the United States were subject to publication. It's also of importance because Russian courts at the moment have taken the view that an unpublished treaty doesn't exist. They will not enforce it. And I deal with cases that have arisen uh, with the application of this principle. It's an important principle in, in any legal system that if a citizen is presumed to know the law, then he must have access to the law. And that includes treaties as well as legislation. We then turn to the constitutional legislative history and treaties in the Russian legal system. This likewise is a subject in my view of considerable interest because we are dealing mostly today with article 15.4 of the 1993 Russian constitution. And that is the one which gives primacy to treaties within the Russian legal system. But the question of course is this, where did that clause come from? And why was it introduced in 1993? And it turns out that when one examines the legislative history of the clause, that there was immense opposition to it. In fact, it was in one of the early drafts and it was attacked on all sides by almost all parties in the system who wanted a different formulation. And none of them succeeded in changing it. The position taken ultimately by those who saw through the draft constitution was that this came from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They expressly attributed it to the ministry, but not to any specific individual. And uh, that it was the preferred position of the government. And that was enough to carry the day. Well, we'll learn a little later this morning that that approach has been re reconsidered and uh, we occupy a slightly different position today than we did in 1993. Be it as it may, uh, investigating the legislative history of the provision was of interest in and of itself. There are two major sources, which I think our students of Russian constitutional law overlook at their peril. One is a 21 volume collection of the stenographic or verbatim, verbatim report of the constitutional convention, where this article was debated at the time and different positions were expressed. I don't know who's got the set, I happen to have it. Uh, it was not printed in a large print run, but it is official and it is an extremely useful source. The other is the set that I borrowed partly from our chairman this morning. It's a six volume in 10 set of background materials in the legislative history, which includes an exceptionally rich collection of draft constitutions and draft amendments to the constitutions over a two or three year period. It likewise is immensely useful in exploring this aspect. And I was able to trace the reactions that uh, occurred throughout this period of time to the various formulations of the draft and the ultimate choice, uh, which made it into the constitution itself. Then in chapter six, I turned to treaties of the subjects of the Federation. We often forget as students of Russian affairs that the former USSR was a treaty construct the USSR didn't exist from 1917. It didn't exist until at least the 30th of December, 1922, five years later, when it was formed by the Treaty of the Union. That was a treaty. And it's, of course, we were inclined throughout the period to emphasize the supranational aspects of the USSR at the time, the federalist trends that were very much at work, of course, but not exclusively so during this period. And that meant probably that we exaggerated the uh, supranational element of the USSR. Be that as it may, by the time that events had moved on to 1991, when it came time to dissolve the former Soviet Union, they used the law of treaties. The Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, etc., denounced the Treaty of the Union. That was the way of withdrawal. It wasn't secession from the Union which would amount to a secession from a federal state. It was the uh, attack quite legitimately upon the treaty foundations of the union itself. And so principles of international law of treaties were used to this end. And as it has transpired very successfully and without violence that many students of Soviet affairs at the time predicted would happen and it didn't happen. That was uh, an exercise in self-deception, which was partly fueled by an ignorance of the law of treaties and the 
potential that it offered for the dissolution of a union that had proved to be unsatisfactory to its members. We're witnessing, of course, uh, as we sit here, another exercise in this with Brexit, but it's precisely the same thing. There's been a severe conflict between the supranationalists in the European Union, who believed that secession was inappropriate, and of course, the ultimate outcome of Brexit, which meant that the United Kingdom invoked its rights under international law to withdraw from a set of international treaties, which uh, have formed the European communities and later the European Union built on their basis. I mention that because treaties of the subjects of the Federation represent another variant, both on Russian history and upon recent Soviet experience. That is to say, the international legal status, if any, of the subjects of the Federation is one issue in all of this. Some subjects assert it vigorously, like Tatarstan and Chechnya. Others have uh, accepted that if they had it, they no longer have it. Others considered that perhaps they never had it to begin with. And so there's a variant amongst the 85 subjects of the Federation uh, in approaches to this issue. Uh, but the question remains out there, of course, as to the extent to which and under what circumstances subject to the Federation right under Russian law to enter into treaty arrangements with foreign countries and amongst themselves. And what is the status of such treaties? Is it, are they governed by international law? 1969 Vienna Convention and the Law of Treaties, or are they governed by Russian constitutional law? Uh, possibly both, as the case may be. Finally, uh, I conclude with a chapter on international treaties in Russian judicial and arbitral practice. This concerns the role of the European Court of Human Rights. This concerns the role of judicial decisions from Russian courts themselves and from international tribunals and their relationship to the development of the law of treaties. Let me turn now to a point that I already mentioned, namely Article 15.4 of the Constitution. And I'll read it to you because this is the provision that's at the heart directly or indirectly of recent constitutional dialogue uh, in the Russian Federation on the law of treaties. That provision says, and this is my translation, and I take issue with alternative translations, generally recognized principles and norms of international law and international treaties of the Russian Federation shall be an integral part of its legal system. If other rules have been established by an international treaty of the Russian Federation, then provided for by a law, the rules of the international treaty shall apply. Now, if we look at the clause itself and we parse it a bit, there are very interesting dimensions of it. But suffice it to observe at the outset that this clause is in chapter one of the constitution, which is very, very difficult to amend. It is conceivable, but no government of Russia has yet tried to amend this chapter or chapter two of the, of, of the Constitution. The Constitution chapter nine deals with amendment procedures. And if you look at it, you will see that these chapters are subject to special amendment requirements. And it would be a courageous government of any led by anybody which undertook the process of reconsidering these provisions. And so they didn't. In the Constitutional Amendments of March, 2020, no provisions of these difficult to amend chapters were approached. Other chapters which can be amended more readily were approached in all of this. So let's look at the clause a bit more closely. Generally recognized principles and norms of international law. That's referring not to treaties, but to principles. People differ in their understanding of this clause, but I would say principles of customary international law. Some would say it would include general principles of international law that are even more fundamental than customary principles, such as principles use co-gains, for example, or general principles of international law that have a higher stature than your ordinary routine customary principles of international law. In any event, Russian courts have recognized their existence. They have referred to them explicitly and generally in individual court decisions. 
and they are a part of Russian jurisprudence and a part of Russian international legal doctrine. Shall be an integral part of its legal system, integral part and legal system. Legal system is understood by most Russian international lawyers broadly, and it means uh, not merely the body of legislation and treaties on any particular subject, but also the body of doctrine, the body of judicial practice, the body of arbitral practice, and the like. Different lawyers, of course, have a different spin on the term, and that's not surprising that would be the same in almost any other legal system on the planet. Integral part, however, is an interesting proposition. Uh, and it relates to sources of law. Russian and Soviet law preceding it have had a fairly highly developed doctrine of the hierarchy of sources of law by which they mean, and it varies from one lawyer to another, uh, everything from natural law principles to the constitution, of course, to federal constitutional laws, to federal laws, uh, and so forth. When I deal with sources of law in this book, I deal with at least 18 different kinds of them. The question always is though, and this is true of all post-Soviet jurisdictions, where, does, where do treaties fit into the equation? Treaties aren't legislation. And Article 15.4 gives treaties priority over an inconsistent federal law. But it doesn't really say, for example, does it take priority over the constitution itself? Does it take priority over federal constitutional laws of which there are a few? Federal laws, it would be the minimum, so to speak. But if it does take precedence over them, does it do so forever? Or does it do so until another law is adopted which happens to be inconsistent with the treaty and would also be closer to American constitutional doctrine, I may say. All legal systems have, post-Soviet legal systems have difficulty with this because they all like to work with what they understand to be the hierarchy of sources of positive law. Now, many of the post-Soviet legal systems, but not Russia, have been, in my opinion, unwise enough to adopt a law on normative legal acts. And where they've done so, particularly in Central Asia and elsewhere, they have given a list of which enactment over, overrides inferior enactments. So for example, a decree of the government will be higher than a, a decision of a ministry, for example. And it may depend where the ministry ranks in the hierarchy of ministries within the system. Uh, ministerial enactments will ordinarily override enactments of local government, etc. In a system which places a great degree of reliance upon formalism and that has a sophisticated appreciation of the kinds of normative legal acts that may be adopted. And there are more names for these normative legal acts than we have terms in English. I once tried to make a list, I had over 40. I ran out of English equivalents, no matter how creative I was. There were some where I couldn't make a distinction between one and the other, but the terminology wasn't just an exercise in the development of vocabulary. It was an attempt to create a system where if you were consistent in your choice of English equivalents for the Russian term, you could understand at once where they fit into the hierarchy of sources of law. And that's why we talk about Pustinovlenia being a decree and not being a resolution, for example, because there's another word for resolution and the government of Russia and other enactments, including Russian courts, don't adopt resolutions. It just doesn't make any sense, although it's a widely uh, widely encountered situation in commercial translations, at least, of Russian legal materials. So we're left with the situation where you have legal systems that are deeply conscious of the necessity for a hierarchy of sources of law, but none of the laws that I've mentioned in the other republics include treaties as part of the equation. Why not? They're aware of treaties, they enter into treaties, et cetera, but they're not comfortable with making the decision, I think. So we're left with general clauses like 15.4 in the Russian constitution. There are equivalent clauses in some, but not all of the other post-Soviet constitutions. And we're left with the vacuum of where exactly treaties fit into the equation. 
Well, Russian courts have filled part of the vacuum, but not all of it. In the case of the courts, they issued in 2003 a decree, which is binding upon all lower courts and amounts to an interpretation amongst other things of Article 15.4. And basically what the courts did was reintroduce the position in the Constitutional Convention that was not accepted. They limited the operation of Article 15.4. Now, that has not been deemed to be enough. And that's what leads us to the amendments of March of 2020. And I will now turn to my copy of the book because on page 2226, I deal with Article 79. And that is the principle, but not the only one that affects this issue. If you are a devotee of Article 15.4 in its most literal understanding, then you will regard Article 79 as a kind of end run around Article 15.4. It says this in my translation, the Russian Federation may participate, may participate in interstate associations and transfer to them part of its powers in accordance with international treaties of the Russian Federation, if this does not entail a limitation of the rights and freedoms of man and citizen, that is human rights, and is not contrary to the foundations of the constitutional system of the Russian Federation. Fine. First question is, interstate associations, does that include international courts? And there's a good argument that it might. Decisions of interstate agencies adopted on the basis of provisions of international treaties of the Russian Federation in a construction thereof, contrary to the constitution of the Federation, shall not be subject to execution in the Russian Federation. Now that sentence I understand to be directly targeted against Strasbourg, against the European Court of Human Rights. So that undertakes to resolve the issue for Russia of judgments of the European Court of Human Rights that are not considered to be consistent with Russian values, with Russian constitutional, uh, constitutional provisions and provide a foundation for a refusal to execute those particular judgments. So obviously one question has to be, is that clause of Article 79 inconsistent with Article 15.4 of the Constitution or not? And it will be interesting to see how the jurisprudence develops in Russia along those lines. The Navalny case, of course, comes to mind because in that particular case last month, the European Court of Human Rights issued an order which required the release of Navalny from custody and the Russian government declined to honor that regarding that order as a violation of its sovereign rights. But I would observe that that was not a judgment of the court. That was an interim order of the court. And that raises different issues, um, not unrelated to the one we're talking about, uh, certainly deriving from a treaty of the Russian Federation, but not precisely uh, on point in the way that an ordinary judgment would be. Of course, many countries who are party to the Human Rights Convention of Europe in 1950 have had from time to time their problems uh, with judgments of that court. Uh, the United Kingdom is no exception to that. Uh, not necessarily the same judgments that other countries have had, but nonetheless, certain judgments of the court. And there has been a discernible movement uh, in some quarters of Europe to reconsider the boundaries of judgments of the European Court of Human Rights, and that is a process that is far from over. But this is a fairly direct uh, move against the European treaty, I would say, not just the court itself, and a clawing back on the part of Russia of a certain uh, measure of discretion as to whether they will choose to comply with a judgment of the European Court of Human Rights or not. The interesting part of this exercise, at least one of the interesting parts is that this happens at a time when Russia is also pursuing in its foreign policy 
and in its international legal policy, integration schemes elsewhere in Central Asia, which do amount to a measure of supranationality that we have not ordinarily seen in Russian diplomatic practice. I refer to the European, to the, sorry, to the Eurasian Economic Union, or sometimes known as the European Asian Economic, Eurasian Economic Community, which is small in terms of the number of parties involved at the moment, but does explicitly provide for a measure of cession of sovereign powers of the parties to the Eurasian Economic Union and the creation of an economic court of that international organization whose decisions are binding if they're uh, achieved in a certain manner upon the parties concerned. So on one hand, Russia in Western Europe is concerned about a human rights court that it believes may be overreaching in its understanding of the treaty and its relationship to the constitution. And on the other hand, is, is trying to create a economic body in Central Asia, uh, which is more integration minded than any preceding union, uh, except possibly the union with Belarus, than any preceding uh, relationship of that kind that the Russian Federation has entered into. So that's a brief outline of what the book is about. Uh, as I mentioned to you, the book appears, maybe I didn't mention to you, I should mention to you. The book appears in a new series of the Oxford University Press called Elements of International Law. It's the second title to appear. The first one deals in fact with the European Court of Human Rights. And I haven't looked lately, there may be third and fourth volumes that are on the way. Uh, I know that they are on the way. They intend to produce up to hundred titles in this series. So they're limited in scope. We're all limited in word count. Uh, they adhere vigorously to that, I can tell you. They were generous enough to allow me some extra paragraphs at the end of the day to take account of the constitutional amendments of March, 2020, which entered into force on the 4th of July, 2020. So I'll leave you all with that conspectus of the book and I'll turn the floor back to our chairman and welcome any questions that there may be. Thank you very much, Professor Butler. I, I forgot to hold up the book, but here it is. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you can actually purchase the book uh, with a discount by going to the Oxford University Press um, and with the code ALAUTHC4 and receive a 30% discount. Again, we're open for questions as well. You can send your questions uh, to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet us at Kenan Institute or you can post on your face, uh, post on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when asking questions. Uh, there's a lot to um, talk about uh, with uh, with Professor Butler, Butler's book. Um, I want to begin with the question of the internal treaties, and they serving as the foundation of the Soviet Union, of the Russian Federation, and other treaties that have at times in Russian history incorporated other areas, other legal systems, and has contributed to the duality, as it were, of Russian law and the pluralistic nature of Russian law. So my question, my initial question for you is, how stable is this incorporation of treaties as a foundation of Russia? Um, obviously, as you expertly mentioned, the Soviet Union collapsed because they resigned, uh, because three, three out of the four countries resigned from the Union Treaty. Uh, Tatarstan and Chechnya have never signed onto the Federation Treaty of 19, uh, of, um, of 19, of, um, uh, of uh, 19, uh, 1992, yes, I was going to spit it out eventually. Um, so you, you, you describe this really kind of reliance on the internal treaty process, but at some times, and in the 20th century, at two catastrophic times, these internal treaties don't hold the country together. 
So my first question is how stable is this tradition of relying on treaties to form what we call Russia? It's a very interesting question, which I routinely put in one form or another to my own students who take my course in Russian legal systems, because this is an exercise in federalism and their various models of a federal state or a confederate state that one can pursue. There's an argument to be made that the Constitution of the United States is really a, a form of treaty. And people who, are, who want to explore that proposition ask themselves, what was the status of the 13 colonies between 1776 and 1791 when the Constitution entered into force of the United States? What were they? Were they members of a confederation? Were they independent states? Uh, were they something else, something in between, as the case may be? You look at the European Union, uh, same kind of thing. You have a body of treaties which create the uh, communities and then the union. Uh, and you have a strong ideology of those who create the document, who believe that it should become a, a state of its own nature. Britain and the, UK and the EU at the moment are in a diplomatic tussle over how the EU should be recognized in the United Kingdom, should be recognized with full diplomatic recognition like another country, or should they be treated as an international organization and that is still yet to be fully resolved. So the stability question goes to the issue of how does a conglomerate of entities uh, combine itself into something larger and to what extent are they prepared to commit themselves irretrievably to that union versus not. Um, in the case of the early history of the Soviet Union, you remember we had two out there. We not only had the USSR, which came along, but we had the Transcaucasian SFSR, which had three states in it, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia at the time. That one broke up into the constituent members and they became union republics of the USSR. But I don't think anybody's ever looked at the constitutional underpinnings of that entity to ask themselves, you know, could it, did it have prospects for uh, something more stable or not? Uh, so we've had stable and unstable versions of this. Uh, you could look at the other kinds of international arrangements that the Soviet Union has entered into like Comacon, for example, or SMIA, depending on your choice of abbreviation and ask whether they had in mind or not uh, something more substantial eventually, whether they were really committed to it or not. I'm one of those skeptics who's always said that in most cases known to me, the Soviet Union or Russia itself or the Russian Federation has been unwilling to go too far in the direction of creating something like the United States of America, which fought its own civil war over the issue of, of secession or not. So stability is, uh, it's an objective that is a floating target in a way. And because any federal system is a moving system and it moves back and forth between centrifugal and centripetal forces, uh, it's hard at any moment in time to predict exactly where it is, but it's not stable. It's not in the sense that it's, it's not without movement. And we're witnessing that in our own country at the moment. That would be my response. I think it's an eternal issue. It's a really good one. And I think Russian experience has a lot to teach us uh, about the models that are out there. Thanks. Uh, again, if you have questions, you can email them to us at Kennan at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet us at Kennan Institute or post on our Facebook page. So you really, and I, I'm ha happy to indirectly have contributed to your uh, constitutional investigation of Article 15.4, uh, because it is indeed such a unique provision. And uh, I, I can safely say that the United States doesn't have an equivalent position. No. Uh, and uh, would, 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 it would have to be a major debate as to whether we could incorporate such a provision. But when, when this provision was initially introduced, as you discussed, um, it's antecedents were in Soviet law. And so I want to just try to have you explain a little bit more how this provision was debated or not debated and who voiced the most stringent objections to this, the incorporation of Article 15.4. And finally, did they really anticipate what it meant 
I mean, they weren't a member of the European Convention. They hadn't signed on to European court decisions at that time. Um, did they anticipate how this provision could be interpreted? From about the late 1950s onward, uh, the Soviet Union introduced selectively into its legal system the principle that international treaties of the USSR took precedence over inconsistent federal legislation. So these were legislative provisions. Uh, they were introduced into some branches of law, but not others. But the most important branches of law, criminal law, civil law, et cetera, contained these provisions. There was a debate that naturally broke out over whether the clause extended only to those branches of law or whether it was a, state, a statement of general principle of general application and applied across the board. But be that as it may, as far as I'm aware, in principle, the Soviet Union honored that principle and uh, it was in practice not contested. When the USSR disappeared, there was of course a period of a couple of years where there was no constitution, a new constitution, it was the old constitution as amended and um, the issue of not only the status of international treaties vis-a-vis -vis legislation, but the survival of USSR treaties in general in the post-Soviet period was at stake. And Russia took the view that she was the legal continuer, not the legal successor, but the legal continuer of the former USSR. That provision likewise has been addressed in the amendments of March, 2020 in the constitution. But I always regarded that as a stroke of genius on somebody's part uh, in, in the Russian Federation because it eliminated so many issues that normally accompany uh, questions of succession. Those issues were not eliminated for the other 11 union republics. They were successors, not continuers. But in the case of Russia, it was. And I encountered personally issues arising in 1992, for example, with relation to tax treaties of the USSR with foreign countries as to whether they continued to survive or not. Of course, the answer had immediate impact for all foreigners in Russia of the country concerned. Because if the answer was no, there was no double taxation treaty, then they were subject to double taxation. And if the answer was yes, then they were protected unless and until uh, a new treaty was, was negotiated. And I can tell you from correspondence that I saw, the Ministry of Finances didn't necessarily share the same view that other ministries did at the time. And there were some very serious discussions uh, that took place uh, in those days. Uh, who was against? Um, you can go through the chapter where we identify, I identify each of the participants in the play. The Communist Party was generally against uh, Article 15.4. But I would say that most people were against Article 15.4, and I'm not sure whether they fully understood uh, the, the complete implications of it or whether this was a normal conservative lawyer's reaction, not conservative politically, but just traditional lawyer's reaction against some other legal system becoming operative within your own domestic legal system. We would have the same, we do have the same difficulty, of course. Uh, so I, I think I would, would leave it there. I don't, it's a very important point that you make that Russia was not at the time party to the European Convention of 1950 on Human Rights. So this would, would have been if you were a very serious Russian human rights lawyer and you believed this clause was the key towards a better human rights position within Russia, you would have regarded this as a positive step forward, an essential step forward. But whether everybody was that for, forward looking or not, uh, is an open question and very difficult to demonstrate. Again, if you have questions for us, uh, you can email them to Ken at wilsoncenter.org, tweet us at Kennan Institute, or post on our Facebook page. Um, I want to now begin with, with, the, with the end of the book and, and the question about how inconsistent these amendments are to the Constitution. Um, I know that's a little bit outside the purview of the book, but you, you identified this as a big, a big question. And that article, and it's not only involving um, Article 15.4, but in many ways, a, a few other taboo subjects have entered now into the Russian constitution. Um, for example, that the, that the Russian language is the language of the state forming people. 
thereby somehow providing a, a leg up on the Russians as opposed to the multinational of the Russian Federation. Um, so to what extent do these amendments um, create inconsistencies within the constitution? And how do you think that they would play out? Is, is judicial interpretation uh, the way forward or uh, are, are these inconsistencies simply going to remain in, 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 at, at the, at, in the document and not be addressed? Well, a lot of whether something gets addressed is going to depend on what comes before the courts. And I think you're right to suggest that the courts play a key role in all of this. I don't think they're necessarily gonna find the question straightforward either, they're difficult. Um, it would be easy to say that, that the Russian courts may have their approach predefined for them by the policies of, of the administration generally in Russia, but I don't think that necessarily follows. And I don't think that's followed in the experience with the constitution uh, since 1993 either. Um, but some of the formulations are going to raise difficulties. If we look at article 67 prime one, um, I may say that the typesetters had difficulty with the concept of 67 prime one. Uh, those experienced in Russian law who are in the audience will be aware that if they want to insert an article between article 67 and article 68, they insert an article 67 prime one, prime two, prime three, depending on how many they want. And the computer doesn't really go for the prime numbers very well. So they'll put a point one or a parentheses in around the one or something of the sort, which actually has or can have different meaning in Russian legislative technique. I think that the typesetter thought it was a footnote <laughs> and instead of doing the prime one, they change it to a point one. But what it provides is that the Russian Federation shall be the legal successor of the USSR on its territory, fine. And also the legal successor parentheses and I treat the parentheses as an alternative here or legal continuer parentheses. In other words, I don't regard that as a synonym for legal successor. If that were to be the case, that would completely destroy a distinction that the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation successfully made in 1991 onward. And there may be something behind this that I don't see, but that I would have thought would not be to their advantage in all of this. You could make the international legal point, I think legitimately, that the term legal continuer is an invention of Soviet, post-Soviet legal experience. Not and there's a distinction in terms. And I think there's a difference in meaning that's at stake here. The international community accepted the distinction because among other things, it went directly to the question of Russia's continued membership in the United Nations and membership of the Security Council. And if there were an issue of legal succession instead of legal continuance, there would be a serious issue as to whether that status under the charter would be retained or would not, and whether it would, regard, whether it would require additional confirmation, and if so, how, et cetera. So, so some serious legal questions were dodged by the creation and application of that term. Then it says, but with respect to membership in international organizations, organs thereof, participation in international treaties, and also with respect to obligations and assets of the USSR provided for by international treaties, beyond the limits of the territory of the Russian Federation. Well, the first issue of interpretation is the one that I have just drawn attention to. Legal continuer, legal successor, are they different or are they same? What was the intention of the constitutional draftsman in this connection? I hope he had in mind both, <laughs> but if I'm wrong about that and it, the courts understand it differently, then a Pandora's box is going to be opened and in my opinion, at least. And I don't see this to anybody's advantage to do that. So inconsistency, ambiguity, use the term you want for a provision like this, but it either is attempting to address something that they are well aware of and have reason to address, but isn't transparent on its surface, or alternatively, um, 
probably constitutional lawyers have addressed something without full advice from international lawyers uh, in this matter. Great, we, we now have some uh, questions coming in. Uh, this first question is from William uh, Spiegelberger. And he asked, how does the, uh, Professor Butler suppose the January amendments to the constitution uh, may affect the enforcement of foreign arbitral awards in Russia under the New York Convention? References to the January amendments? January amendments, but I, I think just the whole constitutional amendments. Ah, okay. Well, I, I, I think that there may be some implications. One of the questions would be, what is a foreign arbitral tribunal? Is it an international organization? There are some of them would like the International Arbitration Court in The Hague, which one would think might routinely fall into that category or not. Whether it reaches established foreign arbitral tribunals like the ICC in Paris or the London Court of International Arbitration, et cetera, is another issue. Then there's also the question of the amendments to Article 125 of the Constitution where reference is made to the constitutional court. And there, there is specific reference made to the possibility of the execution of the decision of a foreign or international or interstate court or foreign or international arbitration court imposing duties on the Russian Federation if this decision is contrary to the fundamental principles of public policy of the Russian Federation. So first of all, Mr. Spiegelberger, it's transparent on its face that those amendments will affect, uh, in principle, the recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards. The question is whether this will change the situation that has existed heretofore, or whether this is merely constitutional consolidation of uh, a position that has been well established in practice or not. The, the studies that we've seen, that I've seen on the question of the recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards and foreign judicial decisions has been mixed. And uh, the general impression is created correctly or otherwise that foreigners who seek to rec who seek recognition and enforcement of a foreign arbitral award or court decision may experience greater difficulty than they would in other Western jurisdictions. On the other hand, since usually the recognition of a foreign court decision is based on the requirement of a treaty between Russia and the country concerned, which issues, whose courts issue the decision, then uh, there aren't many such treaties uh, other than the New York Convention. Um, there are not many bilateral treaties that provide for that. And the New York Convention relates only to arbitral awards. So uh, I would say that this is at, at a minimum um, a constitutional safeguard that Russia has erected in what she considers to be her interest to uh, obstruct or at least provide another hurdle for those who are enforcing a foreign arbitral award or foreign court decision. Okay, uh, we now have a question from Marguerite Chapman. Uh, if I understand correctly, you mentioned that post-Soviet states other than Russia are reluctant to include treaties in their laws. Could you please talk about the possible cultural and historical factors influencing their hesitancy? The other republics other than Russia, uh, the other independent states, some of whom have more or less replicated Article 15.4 and others who, whom have not, I think have chosen their course of action, probably not for historical or cultural reasons, uh, because their constitutional traditions are weaker. And this question will not have arisen for them during the Soviet period. They will not have been involved in international matters that would routinely raise that question. That will have been regulated by all union Soviet law. So my best guess is that these are considerations that any foreign office would consider on the merits, the pluses and the minuses of uh, the, of, of making treaties part of the international, uh, part of the national legal system or not as the case may be. I may cite a personal example uh, in Kazakhstan in the early nineties, the question was whether Kazakhstan as a legal successor of the former Soviet Union would consider itself to be party to the 1958 New York Convention on the recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards or not. 
and I, this became important in a client matter, and I raised a question with the foreign ministry, and the initial reaction I got was, of course, of course, but we'll check it and come back to you. Well, three days later, they came back and said, we've thought it over, and we're going to we're going to defer a decision on this for a little while. We're not sure exactly what we think the position should be. Well, it took two years uh, for them to consider the position. And ultimately, of course, Kazakhstan became a party to it. But these are not straightforward decisions. They involve uh, costs and advantages that have to be weighed in each individual case. And it's not surprising, I think, that countries which considered the position when they drafted their constitutions uh, reconsidered the pros and cons of this one. Okay, um, our next question is, how do you explain Russia's redefining of the term sovereignty in the Westphalian sense in light of human rights abuses, annexation, and other activities in the post-Soviet space? Well, the definition of sovereignty has been under reconsideration, not only in the former Soviet Union, but in Russia and other post-Soviet countries for decades. There are shelves of books by international lawyers, by historians and others, which recontemplate the question of sovereignty, what it means in the post-Westphalian sense, the Westphalian sense, uh, the experience of, of Russia itself historically and otherwise. So, there is no straightforward answer to this, but it's not surprising, I think, that if you're referring to the Russian attitude towards Strasbourg, that if you are going to take a critical view of Strasbourg judgments, uh, then the kind of language that they have chosen to draw upon, uh, judgments inconsistent with the fundamental principles of Russian public policy or the Russian public order, Russian constitutional system, et cetera, this is the, formulaic language that one would draw upon in that case. What you're really asking is how comfortable are you with uh, extending, with allowing an international body to render judgments that will affect the way in which you practice your constitutional rights and freedoms. Uh, Peter Rutland had a follow-on question about the question of successor and continuation state. Were there any precedents in international law for the notion of the Russian Federation as a continuation state as opposed to a successor state? As to the best of my knowledge, the term was invented by the, by the Russian side in this case. I've never seen it before. I've certainly never seen it in the Russian language before. And I've never seen it discussed in any doctrinal writings before. And I've never seen anybody explore the implications of the distinction. So if there are precedents, then I suspect they're precedents under a slightly different terminology, and they're unknown to me. But that doesn't mean they're not out there. So uh, the, the last question I, I, I would pose is the question about you raised at the end about the Eurasian economic community. And it's been renamed. That's why we're I keep stumbling over that it's been one and it's been the other. Yes. Okay. But 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 the, the, the enforcement and the su supremacy of the union, that, that community law, uh, and the very different attitude towards Strasbourg and so forth. So is it just kind of picking and choosing or is there is there a, a consistency that you can find that is, is not apparent on the surface? Well, it depends how instrumental you want to be in your interpretation. I suppose you could say that if you are the principal architect of an economic community and everybody else, you're the most powerful nation within it, it was your idea, you've persuaded others to join it, uh, and you're willing to give up some of your sovereign rights to the community, fair enough. <laughs> but if you're joining a larger community and you're a latecomer to the community, um, you may decide that you are limited in the amount of discretion that you're prepared to give to the international community, especially if they seem to behave in ways differently that was not contemplated at the time you joined. Great. Well, we've come to the end of our time here. Again, here's the book. And you can purchase the book by going to Oxford University Press and using the code 
again, all in caps, A-L-A-U-T-H-C4, to receive a 30% discount. Uh, we are always happy to have Professor Butler uh, come to the Kennan Institute and, and show his, his deep knowledge and wisdom on Russian and indeed the in, entire CIS law. So we hope to have William, uh, Professor Butler back here shortly, but thank you all for your questions and thank you for attending today's seminar. Thanks very much.